Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and I like a good love story as much as anybody. The 18th century is romanticized in movies and fiction as a simpler time where relationships were more straightforward. You fall in love, you get married, and you live happily ever after. But what if you don't? What happens when things go wrong? When a woman is legally invisible, what could she do to look after herself and her future? This week, we're going to look at just that. Our guest is Dr. Jacqueline Beatty, author of Independence, Women and the Patriarchal State in Revolutionary America. We're talking about 18th century marriage, financial dependence, divorce, and how women played up to society's perception of them as the weaker sex to get what they wanted or needed to survive. It's a fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Jacqueline Beatty, author of Independence, Women and the Patriarchal State in Revolutionary America. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thanks for having me. We're so glad to have you. This is such an eye-opening book. As, as I was like previously a romance author, you know, like a lot of uh, my experience with this kind of ended with like, and then they got married and then it was over. But of course, that is just the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think you do a really fantastic job here uh, explaining what that was really like and and what could happen. So I, I'm so excited to bring this to to our audience today. So let's go ahead and start with the basics. So independence looks at the restrictions put on women in 18th century America and the ways that they found empowerment despite their limitations. So for context, what was life like for most women around this time? Uh, I think uh, that most of your listeners would not want to time travel back to the 18th century to put themselves in 18th century women's shoes. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways in which, especially married women, but all women, and of course, this is also kind of contingent upon race and class, had severe restrictions on not just their legal rights, but their political rights and their kind of cultural and social capital as well. Um, one of the kind of major things that historians uh, discuss in terms of limitations on women's lives in, in the long 18th century is the idea of coverture, um, which was part of the English common law custom. Um, and coverture basically um, asserted that when a man and a woman were married, they kind of fused their legal identity in marriage. And of course, in this kind of patriarchal system, men were at the top of um, kind of the, the power of these two people. Um, so a woman would effectively lose significant rights when she got married. Um, she could no longer sue or contract in her own name uh, because it was you know, her husband's legal identity. Um, and any property that she had owned or would acquire in the future belonged to her husband, even if it was something that she had worked for herself. Um, so there, th that kind of lack of distinction of a separate legal identity for women in marriage is one of the most restrictive elements of their lives. Women uh, did not have the right to vote in this period. Um, there was one very small, very brief exception for women in New Jersey that not a lot of people know about. Um, after the revolution, the New Jersey state constitution had effectively um, gender neutral language when it came to voters. So there were property restrictions, but not gender or racial restrictions. So there were some basically uh, white women widows who had, you know, significant enough property that they were able to vote for a number of years um, until the 
constitution itself was rewritten to explicitly exclude women and African-Americans from the franchise. So save for that very one small exception, women could not vote. Um, and when we're talking about impoverished women, Black women, Indigenous women, restrictions on their behavior um, was, of course, much greater than their white counterparts. Mm, absolutely. What were some of the other limitations that might surprise people today? Well, I think a lot of it as well is kind of um, kind of social and cultural expectations of femininity. There's a whole body of source material that we call conduct literature, which is um, kind of present in in fiction and nonfiction in newspapers and magazines, especially um, that would basically moralize about how women should behave and act, um, about what a good wife would do versus a good husband. Um, and the expectations are quite high, as one might expect. Um, I think in the book, in the introduction, I, I go through some of this conduct literature um, and it's it's kind of frustrating when when people read it for the first time, they get very upset that this is kind of what women are made to read um, and how they're made to act, right? These are the kind of social expectations thrust upon them um, that make, I think, 21st century feminists particularly uh, furious, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Um, so we've talked about like the British idea of like the domestic angel in the past. And of course, mm -hmm. you know, America had its, had its own equivalent in these pamphlets and the conduct manuals. So what were some of the uh, ideal traits of the so-called perfect wife and, and how successful were women at living up to these standards? Yeah, I mean, some of them are probably things that your reader could guess, but would, you know, continue to be appalled by things that <laughs> they should be exceptionally dutiful and obedient. And I think, you know, one of the sources I cite says that women should be submissive by choice, right? So that it's not just going along with the rules, but wanting to, um, and, and understanding that that is women's proper or, you know, scare quotes, natural position. So this is something that I've always been interested in, um, from when I was an undergraduate studying these things, like, did women actually buy into this nonsense effectively? Um, and that was something I thought about while I was writing the book, but ultimately decided, at least for this project, that um, it was not one of the central questions that I could answer or was interested in answering. What I was more kind of compelled by was that women recognized the potency of these expectations, right? Um, there are certainly women that are performing them in public, at social events, right? That they they are meeting those expectations. But um, the, the, I think, more significant piece of this history is that women understood that these expectations had social capital and they were able to perform it in such a way to indicate that they were successful, even if you know they weren't, and even if they didn't believe in the ideology. Mm, well, very interesting. So I haven't uh, personally come across a lot of uh, advice for for what it meant to be like a good husband. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What were the standards for men? Uh, were they as strict as they were for women? Or could they pretty much behave with impunity? Um, I wouldn't say impunity, um, because some of the you know records I found demonstrate that, you know, men were not you know, without fault in these cases, um, but they certainly weren't as strict as they were for women, right? Men had the kind of independence of kind of property ownership and political rights in a lot of ways that women were not um, uh, granted. How men were prescribed to behave was in kind of symbiosis with what women's expectations were, right? So women were supposed to be dependent on and submissive to men, right? Men had the authority over women, but as was the case with children, right? They were meant to care for and protect their dependents, right? So that mostly meant financial support, right? If you're going to take away a person's right to property ownership or to benefit from their labor, then you have to be able to care for them, right? And the law upheld this in many ways as well. Um, but there's also a measure of kind of care and emotional support that comes into play, um, especially as we kind of go into the years of the early Republic, immediately after the revolution, there are expectations present in the conduct literature for um, young people to be seeking what were called companionate marriages, right? Where um, rather than, you know, just um, seeking marital unions for economics and, and financial um, 
safety, they should also consider whether their spouses would be good Republican partners, basically small R Republican in this early Republic, right? Trying to help the new nation survive. Um, so I think there are ways in which there is a little bit more freedom of choice for men and women, um, but, and certainly there are expectations that a husband was held to account for uh, both in the conduct literature and in the law, but certainly not as restrictive as was the case for women. Mm. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And uh, for our listeners who've been with us for a little while, we talked about this a little bit with uh, Dr. Cassandra Good in our Founding Friendships episode, or I should say um, Founding Fuck Buddies is, uh, is what we <laughs> called it, of course. So that one was was more about, about those kind of companionate relationships. And uh, and this one, what we're talking about with Dr. Beatty today is really the next step of that, about what kind of happened when when people entered into these contracts with each other. So this time period, it's often viewed through a, a very romantic and idealistic lens, but marriage for women was not always happily ever after. So what was the reality of married life for women in this period? Yeah, I think it's it's hard to make a generalization because the sources that I looked at specifically show me the especially dark sides of marriages mm -hmm. and when they crumble, right? I think you know, if I looked at the letters of John and Abigail Adams, I'd come out with a very different picture. So it really depends on the source material. But um, most of what I looked at for this book um, were um, women's petitions to state legislatures, especially um, asking for various forms of aid and relief during and after the revolution, uh, but also women's petitions for divorce in various mm -hmm. county court records. Um, and there you see really the darkest elements of people's personal relationships. Um, they're very, very interesting sources. I sometimes felt like I was the Jerry Springer of the 18th century reading about um, people's intimate personal issues with their spouses being um, kind of aired in the courtroom. Um, but it's also really compelling because a, a lot of these folks may not have left many or any other written records. So we get to understand what it was like to be them, what their lived experience was like without um, having letters or diaries that you might use in other kinds of um, research. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I'm so curious about 18th century divorce. I think a lot of people just assume that it never happened, but of course it did. As you mentioned, you were the, the Jerry Springer of the period. Love it. You <laughs> yeah. must have found some crazy stories. So yeah. what was the divorce process like at this time and who could access it? What options did people have for ending marriages? Yeah, um, it really depends on the jurisdiction. So my book looks at women in, in Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston. So they're subject to different sets of laws in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina. Um, and I like to think about Massachusetts and South Carolina being on two ends of a spectrum, and then um, Pennsylvania is kind of the, the Goldilocks in, in between, right? So um, Massachusetts actually allowed for divorce from basically the founding of the Massachusetts colonies um, because Puritans believed that marriage was a civil contract and therefore could be dissolved under law if one or both parties breached the terms of the contract. Um, in South Carolina, by contrast, uh, divorce was not legal for any of the period I study through 1820. Um, it would not be legal until the Reconstruction period when the United States forced um, the Southern states, in order to come back into the Union, um, that they had to, you know, check all of these kind of constitutional boxes, including accepting the abol uh, abolition of slavery. Um, but one of the things that was put into the new South Carolina state constitution was access to divorce. Um, but that didn't last very long once the Southern states kind of rejected Reconstruction and Reconstruction ended. They rewrote their constitutions again, and divorce was not legal until, and I have to double check on this, but I'm fairly certain the mid 20th century. Uh, in, in South Carolina. So um, very, very different ends of the spectrum. Um, Pennsylvania did allow for divorce under certain circumstances before the revolution, but the process was really onerous. Spouses who wanted divorces would have to get a law passed essentially by the legislature and it was expensive. So it was really only elites who had true access to divorce. Um, and most of these cases were men and they were very few and far between. Um, it changes in 1785 when Pennsylvania's revolutionary government liberalizes the law, as some scholars argue, as a result of the language of the revolution. Um, and the process is more similar to what happens in Massachusetts, where people sue for divorces at the county court level for, you know, some of the same reasons, adultery, abandonment, um, 
cruel treatment, things like that. But another thing that happened that I guess doesn't get talked about as much is the idea of of what historians call self-divorce, um, where just one spouse would leave. Um, they would get up and move somewhere else. Sometimes they would marry someone else in a different state. Um, and that was more commonplace than divorce in the era. Um, and it was fairly, I mean, relative to today, easier to get away with, right? Because there's there's no electronics, there's not really a way to track people. Um, and there's, you know, the movement westward is part of the early US history as well. And, you know, people just get up and leave. And if the law doesn't allow it, they don't care, you know? Yeah. Like, how are they going to find them? Right. That's, mm-hmm. It's not like now with, uh, you know, kind of CCTV and everything everywhere, yeah, and credit right. cards and so forth. Like you, you could actually just pack up and go West. Correct. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what was life like for women after divorce? Did they have um, any property or any rights? It depends. Um, some of the records that I look at, I mean, there, there are two different kinds of divorces. Um, there's a divorce from bed and board, which is um, more of a kind of separation where, um, in some regards, the couple still remain married. The woman still remains kind of, um, covered uh, part of coverture in some ways. Um, but in that regard, then her husband is still responsible for providing financial support primarily for her and the children. Um, the permanent divorce is more extreme. Um, and, um, I don't know that I would say is, much more rare, but not the kind of usual process where there would be a full legal divorce that would make it so that the couple is not tied together at all. Although in some cases, women were petitioning for effectively alimony payments, right? Um, and and there were several instances where the court did grant that, right? Using these assumptions that, you know, women are delicate flowers and can't provide for themselves. So even if their marriages end, then their husbands ought to be able to provide for them. Um, but divorce is what was still rare at this period um because to your point women's lives after divorce was very were very difficult um they would have to in all likelihood marry again so that they had that kind of clear and safe financial support or be able to kind of support themselves or have family members or friends who would be able to take them in um and and that was the case for some women but you know, as was the case in general, those who are wealthier or well-off enough have better success because they have a kind of safety net to fall back on, um, whether that's family support or um, kind of a network of people in power who can assist them. Mm. So despite the drawbacks of marriage and the things that could go wrong, is it safe to say that most women still wanted to be married because that was really the best way in life to kind of be taken care of financially? Yeah, that's an interesting question and not one I think I can answer based on the research I did. Um, like I said, most of the women I encountered in my research were running into marital difficulties. Um, what I can tell you is that there were women, even in these divorce petitions, who I think at least performed the understanding that they wanted to stay married, right? That they did all they could, but you know, they just couldn't continue to care for their children while their husband is drunk all the time or he leaves or he's not working or he's abusive, all these things. Like I did what I could. It wasn't my fault. I really would like to stay married, but, and you know, I, you could take them at their word, or you can say they know that this is something that the court wants to hear. Um, because if they said, I hate this guy, you know, I don't want to be married to him. I don't want to be married at all. I want to be out on my own. They're not going to have that same kind of sympathetic audience. So it's hard to tell uh, what they truly wanted or believed based on the materials that they present to the state, but um, they at least know what the state wants to hear. Hmm. Yeah, very much. So were there alternatives to marriage for women? Like if you saw this happening to your friends and your family and you wanted to just avoid it, what else could you do? I would say there's not really alternatives unless you are financially secure. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was the case with some women, but not many. Um, And there were, you know, certainly women who didn't get married and perhaps they would live with sisters or friends, things like that. But that was um, exceedingly rare at this point in time. There, there are um, works done by several historians on single womanhood, um, thinking, oh, Karen Wolf's book is Not All Wives, and Lee Chamber Schiller, I believe is her name, um, wrote a book called Liberty, A Better Husband. Um, so they both kind of investigate 
what the lives of single women were like. Um, and they were for the most part um, from more financially secure or elite families, um, or there were women, single women who did operate businesses in their own names um, and, and oftentimes widows who decided not to remarry um, and they may be you know, financially secure in one way or another. Was the situation different for widows? Were they able to control their own property? Yes, yes. Um, at the very least, um, there was a legal procedure, legal um, right known as dower that was effectively a widow's right to at least one third of her late husband's property. Um, so mm -hmm. upon his death, whether that, I think one third of the real or personal property. Um, so many women were able to kind of set themselves up in widowhood um, as long as their husband's debts were not too overwhelming, um, which was the case in some instances. But um, yeah, there there was a lot more freedom for women after marriage if their spouses had died as opposed to them being divorced because they had a clear right to that property. Hmm. So it's almost more like an ideal situation. Um, this is so dark. I wonder so for, so for the death of their husbands, if you know they, you know, wanted to be in that marriage. Of course, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Um, I, I wonder how many women would have just like rolled them off a cliff or something. Horrible. <laughs> I mean, like I guess we'll never know, will we? Like, no, probably not. No, that's so dark. This is taking a yeah. very dark turn. That's okay. <laughs> the book, the book is dark too. So the book is very dark. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, of course, nobody thinks that their marriage is going to be unhappy when they go into it. Right. So, so how were marriages uh, arranged? How did people choose their partners and, and to what extent were they able to choose them? Yeah, I think, um, like I was talking about before the companionate marriage is a, is a significant change where, mm -hmm. um, the, courting couples would be able to have much more freedom of choice. Um, and this is especially important for women, for young women who are looking to marry because it's one of the last significant free choices they have uh, once they are married. Um, I think in some regards, the most elite, most well-off have less choice um, than kind of the middling or kind of wealthy, but not one percenter type of uh, families um, because they they really can only intermarry with each other, these extreme elites because of social expectations and plenty of families are in fear that, especially if it's a young daughter from a wealthy family that this man is just marrying her for money, he's gonna be terrible, he's gonna be wasteful. Um, so they're very protective of that, that wealth. Um, so I think, in some regards, you can argue that those of kind of middling or upper middle status would have more freedom or the most freedom in choosing spouses. So you write that there were important shifts over the course of the 18th century, especially regarding family limitation and motherhood. So mm -hmm. my background is in the history of contraception and abortion. So I, I have to ask you about this. Yeah. So can you tell us about advances in family planning around this time? Like what was changing? The, the book that I reference um, is by historian Susan Klepp. It's called Revolutionary Conceptions. And she did a phenomenal job tracing um, kind of methods of family planning, family limitation to the degree that they existed in the late 18th century. Um, but more of her thesis was that the revolution and its ideology kind of informed women's changing thoughts on on family limitation, on how many children they wanted to have. Um, and she looks at um, kind of population data, census data to trace um, a, a small but important decline in the number of children that women were having, choosing to have. So what I think is also really important, and then I think I kind of borrowed some of her ideas from my book too, is that women's networks are essential in passing along methods um, of family limitation, um, but also in supporting one another, right? And having conversations about family limitation as well. Um, and I think those those women's networks are really important in this larger patriarchal society that doesn't give women many, if if any, rights under the law. Mm, yes, absolutely. And uh, and so often you see that, that women are assumed to be, I mean, like 
quite literally like the weaker sex, like in every sense of the word, you know, but, mm -hmm. but there were extraordinary women, you know, sort of doing things that they weren't expected to do. So they weren't entirely confined to the home, right? So around this time, some women were activists, they were spies, they were even soldiers in the Revolutionary War. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. So how did women thwart society's expectations to live the kind of lives that they wanted? And, and to what extent could they do that? Yeah, there's there's a lot of work that's been done on women in the revolution that are kind of exceptional in the ways that you describe. Um, what I was really interested in 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 my research were the ways in which women kind of at least rhetorically bought into their dependence and their subordination, but used that as a device to get what they wanted. Um, mm -hmm. In some cases, this was just like survival uh, and having to survive as a result of the the choices that men in the world were making without women having real agency in those decisions, like the war. Um, but what women did um, essentially was to frame their their pleas, their petitions to the state um, by using the language of conduct literature. These expectations that women were subordinate, dependent dutiful wives, right, um, and and say that that made them deserving of aid and assistance, or in some cases, divorces. Um, but also they started to argue that they had a right to these things and a right because they were socially, legally, economically dependent on men. Effectively, mm -hmm. we are in this position and therefore we have a right to these various forms of aid and protection. And if our husbands aren't going to give it to us, the state should. You can frame that in all of the language of of kind of like weakness and submission you want, but like the fact that you are making that argument is is really it's strong. It takes guts. Yes, yeah, and I think that's really important too to recognize that even though um, you know you read thousands of these petitions, you get inured to the language over time. But the very fact that they were strong enough to present their case to either the legislature or the court, which is a very male space, a very male sphere. The fact that they were presenting that and claiming that was an active, strong claim, right? That mm -hmm. I am of this and I will stand in front of all of these men or I will write this letter to all of these men. That's a strong position. That's to your point. It's not weak to do that, right? It's very assertive. Even if the language they use is a kind of rhetoric of weakness, the language belies what they're actually doing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come sell Celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, um, in your introduction, you mentioned uh, Elizabeth Graham Ferguson's petition to reclaim the property left to her by her late father. And uh, and you point out that she made several drafts and amendments to emphasize her apparent helplessness. You know, oh, no, I'm so weak. Please help mm. me. Because, <laughs> of course, this is the most effective way to win over men in power. So mm. in what ways did women exploit the perception of femininity as weakness in order to get what they wanted? Yeah, I think... Um... There are a lot of ways and it's multi-layered. Um, one of the kind of most common that I encountered was basically women saying that, you know, oh, I, you know, I'm a woman, I'm dependent on my husband or I'm dependent financially. I can't possibly provide for myself and my children adequately, right? Mm -hmm. That they buy into that notion of financial dependence, which is the most common trope that I see in these sources because women want money, money that they're owed in some cases, sometimes widows' pensions, right? Sometimes um, you know, just relief that the state owes to dependent women. But there are also ways that women um, kind of manipulate the understanding that they are apolitical beings to work to their advantage. Um, I saw this a lot when um, the British occupation of, of these cities ended, um, especially in, in Charleston. It's one of the most common um, reasons that women are petitioning that um, if their husbands were kind of pegged as as loyalists, right? And I can use scare quotes there too, because this is all kind of subjective in some cases. But um, the revolutionary governments that took over after the British left Charleston would have confiscated the property of known loyalists um, in the name of the state. And they would have banished men who were 
either, you know, they had signed loyalty oaths to the king um, or they had fought for the British um, in, in some capacity or given aid to the British. So there are women and a lot of them are quite wealthier from wealthy families um, that would petition the state both to get their property back or their family's property back, their husband's property back, um, but sometimes to get their husband's back, not always, but sometimes uh, the property is always the the primary issue there. Um, and there are women that kind of argue that, you know, they're not political, of course, right? I, I don't take a side in this. Um, and the reason some of them will argue that their husbands sided with the British was that these men were trying to protect their families or their communities, right? So not only are they saying that like, uh, I'm performing my feminine role because I'm dependent and I don't have a political identity. I don't have a dog in this fight, uh, but my husband, he's really a true patriot, but you know, he thought the cause was lost and really his primary goal was to protect his wife and children, right? From the situation. And he thought the best way to do that was to, to fight with the British or whatever the case was. So they are kind of repeating expectations, not just of, of kind of devoted femininity, but of masculinity uh, as well, that what these men are really doing is performing masculine duty. Although they, there are also plenty where they kind of let it rip and, and um, speak out against their husbands, right? That they, they did not live up to their masculine duty because they were traitors and, you know, I, as a wife, am not like that. They're, they, they will either say that they are apolitical or that they believe in the patriot cause and their husband was wrong, right? So there are ways in which they can claim a political identity as long as they're rejecting the wrong kind of patriarch and showing devotion to the state instead. Wow. So they yeah. really do need to, to be kind of in the know politically in order to yeah. know what to say. They need to read these conduct manuals to know how to, to play into this ideal of, of femininity and, yeah. and to know uh, the correct way in which to throw their husbands under the bus. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very delicate performance that they have to do here. Um, and as you say, they really have to be in the know. Some of them get advice from their friends and family members who have successful petitions. Some of them work together on these petitions. But um, yeah, it's it's a very very careful line or very um thin line that they have to toe I should say right so I mean these women they're they're very clever they're educated in a lot of you know in a lot of times um they've got to be what reading the papers or at least listening to gossip they've got to be knowing what's going on in, in order to know kind of how to how to play to whichever side is, is going to be the most advantageous that mm -hmm. is, is remarkable to me you mentioned that um they might petition like what to get the property back but you can keep the husband Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. They, <laughs> sometimes you know, they'll say it'd be great if you could come back too. But like, what we really need is the money, right? And mm -hmm. and in some cases, like they're not just being gauche. They're they they do need the money, right, to survive. Yeah. Um, uh, some women will ask for permission to travel outside of the city or outside of the uh, state to go join their husbands elsewhere. Um, but far and away, the primary reason for their petitions is property. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can, you can keep Doug, but I need the house. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, you have this, this idea, you know, of course, at this time that, that these women are kind of like weak or they're not very clever. They're just kind of following their, their husband's lead. But as, as you kind of read between the lines about what they're doing and, and what they're saying, I mean, these women must've been incredibly clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Right. Um, and they had assistance, right. Sometimes from, clerks, sometimes from uh, lawyers, but I think the place where they get the best advice and assistance is from, from each other. Um, that's, I think that's my favorite chapter in the book, talking about women's networks and alliances uh, and the ways in which they often had to rely on each other because both the, the patriarchal forces in their home and also at the state level were just, you know, disappointing in a lot of ways and not super helpful. So, um, they strategized, they submitted petitions together, they helped each other write petitions. Um, and they also, I think the, the strongest evidence of this are the depositions in divorce cases where women are testifying in some cases to preventing domestic abuse and preventing murder of some of these women by their husbands. Um, they're really, really remarkable and, and difficult sources to go through. Um, but they're also kind of in stark contrast to depositions, witness testimony given by men who are uh, less assertive in challenging their male peers authority in the courtroom. Right. Women, women witnesses have very little problem um, criticizing 
domestic abusers, um, male witnesses are not the same. Um, they'll they'll either claim they're not exactly sure what happened or they didn't see it when they their their wives in some cases are like, no, we saw it, we knew what was happening, right? We and were I there, to, yeah, yeah. I had to you know step in between him and her to you know make sure that she was okay, right? So th- those sources are very very vivid. Yeah, that's that's really dark. You know, the idea that the you know no matter how badly behaved they are, that the men won't testify against each other. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, that's that awful. gender empathy really works both ways, right? Man, mm-hmm. yeah, I do not love that. No, <laughs> no. Oh gosh. So despite the the ideal that that marriage was going to provide stability and protection for women, it's it's the ideal state. It's it's beneficial for everybody involved, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. things could go wrong, and they did go wrong. So. You, you mentioned that uh, the patriarchal structure was inadequate for ensuring their safety and survival. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit more about this? You know, you can go full Jerry Springer. Like what, what could go wrong? Yeah, I mean, the, the most extreme examples are, you know, what I was just saying about domestic abuse, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in a lot of cases, at least the sources I came across, this is fueled by alcoholism, um, although they obviously wouldn't have called it alcoholism at the time. Um, but I think you know, there, there are laws in place, um, to ostensibly protect women from domestic abuse. But, um, at, in the 18th century, there was also a kind of social and legal understanding that there were certain circumstances in which a husband would not be penalized for abuse. If a woman was believed to deserve, uh, the abuse in, in some way. Um, and there's conduct literature that I cite that engages this idea. Um, and you see, evidence of how pervasive this understanding is because women in their petitions for divorce will say over and over, I did nothing. I was obedient. I was submissive. I, you know, performed my duty as a wife, X, Y, Z, and yet he was hitting me for no reason, or he was drinking all the time and excessively violent, you know, whatever they would say. So they're, they're really attuned to the fact that they have to go far above these expectations of what, you know, it's, it's effectively kind of victim blaming, right. In a lot of ways. Um, and they had to prove that they did nothing that would have warranted such abuse under the law or in social custom. Women's position of dependence was supposed to mean that they were taken care of by husbands and, or the state. Um, but the realities of patriarchal power is that People are not taken care of. People are not protected in this way. Um, and one of the kind of downsides, I think, to this strategy overall, while what women did could help to mitigate their individual situations, help them survive, help them get out of these terrible marriages, what they were also doing with their choice of language was reinforcing that understanding, right? And not only kind of tacitly consenting to it. Um, like I said, I have no way to really know whether they bought into it or not, right? They use the language um, and basically we're telling the state that like, yes, women do believe this, right? Because we're buying into it. Um, but it also kind of gave the state an out that it was, I always say it's like putting a band-aid over a gaping wound, right? I'll, I'll fix this one individual situation or these dozens of individual situations. Meanwhile, it's the system that's the problem, but it gives them a pass to not fix the system. And they wouldn't, right? They're they're at the top of that system and the status quo is advantageous to them. So they're in a lot of cases more than happy to help individuals to make sure they're not dependent on the state, um, but also to not change the basic structures of power that give them their power. Wow. It really, uh, it really feels like the odds are kind of stacked against women. And in, sure. in the face of, mm-hmm. of that much, you know, kind of institutional injustice, I mean, you could, you would see why people are frustrated mm-hmm. and, and there are, there aren't a lot of ways for them to fight back against this, but, but how did they fight back? Yeah. I think, um, one of the things that was frustrating for me in, in working through this frustrating from like a 21st century perspective is that, you know, if, if women had been able to, come together collectively to push back. They may have been more successful. They may have not. We as historians don't like hypotheticals because uh, we don't have concrete evidence. But um, I realize that that's you know, not a fair assessment, right? I, I make these arguments in the conclusion that I can't 
hold 18th century women to our standards. I can't want them to push for what I think are, are obvious rights at the time, right? You know, we just had this revolution. Why don't you all want the right to vote? Why don't you all want property rights, right? Um, and, you know, maybe they did, right? <laughs> they, they may have in certain cases, but um, I think it's important for them to be able to have control over their individual lives as much as they can. Um, and what they did do and what I think was really significant is that they recognize that they were deserving of rights under the law. They were not rights that we would necessarily recognize in the 21st century, but they see themselves as rights-bearing citizens, which then gives them the foundation to push for more and expanded rights as American history would wear on. We see the first kind of collective action for women's rights in, in the 1840s, um, in the earliest suffrage movements. Um, and I think what the women in my book do is a necessary step towards that collective action, which then, you know, begets more and more effective collective collective action um, in the future. Mm, yes, absolutely incredible. And these things, they they never change overnight. It, it takes a long period of pressure yes. in order to change things for the better. Absolutely. Yeah. So as restricted as things could be for, for white women, of course, the situation was totally different, as you mentioned, for Black and Indigenous women. So what was their experience like at this time? Yeah, I mean, um, the obvious answer to that is that race-based chattel slavery existed in this period of time um, to which Black women were subject, um, where not just their physical labor was valuable, but also their reproductive labor. Mm -hmm. um, and they were certainly exploited for that reproductive labor because any children that they had, that they gave birth, birth to, would follow their status of slavery under the law. Um, so a lot of historians um, discuss this very difficult, very upsetting legal system, right? Where where children would be born into slavery just because their, their mother was enslaved. Um, but I tried to look at it from a different perspective where women could be armed with the knowledge that their potential status of freedom could also then legally birth freedom to their children, right? So it made women exceptionally more motivated when they were already quite motivated to to be free from slavery. Um, and I kind of unearthed, um, well, I, I, I like to refer to um, this source base of, of manumission deeds, which are records of um, enslavers kind of documenting the freedom of people they enslaved. Um, but I like to think of them as evidence of Black women's petitioning efforts, um, because we don't have there, there are very few petitions written from the perspective of Black women in this period. Um, but I think you can argue, and I, I do argue, that um, you can see evidence of Black women's activism in these manumission deeds, even though they are written from the perspective and sometimes in the hand of enslavers, right? Enslavers are not motivated um, to free enslaved people, right? They make a killing off of enslavement um, and you got to think that there are obvious ways in which enslaved people who are able to gain their freedom, earn their freedom, um, are fighting for it, right? Mm -hmm. And there are a number of manumission deeds that demonstrate this very clearly, that women gain the freedom, they want to gain freedom for their children. Sometimes men work to gain the freedom of their wives and children, right? So there's um, much more, I think, family unity of purpose in these sources than in the sources I looked at um, to try and understand what was going on in white women's experience with the state. Um, so it's a, it's a limited source base, but I think it's compelling to kind of read between the lines and see that Black women are very active in pushing for not just their freedom, but the freedom of their children, which is, I think, really fulfilling the legacy of the revolution much better than anybody else at this period. And was the situation different for free Black women as well? Did they have different rights from white women? They were limited in some of the same ways, um, but they dealt with a very different set of cultural and social restrictions, of course. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's we, we also have to recognize that even if African-Americans were free under the law at this point, that didn't mean that they were not um, 
they were not certainly as free as their white counterparts, um, but as time wore on also, there was the danger that they could also be kind of kidnapped and put back into slavery, especially as we get closer to the Civil War, right? So freedom is very tenuous for Black Americans at this point in time, um, and they are subject to a whole different set of expectations and obviously discrimination um, at this period as well. Um, there were, um, especially after the period I look at, um, increasing legal restrictions on free African-American communities in terms of property rights, in terms of jobs, in terms of um, voting, for sure, for Black men. Um, so it's a kind of instance where the situation is not progressing over time. It is getting worse over time. Gosh, Yeah. So how did the American Revolution change the situation for women in America, or did it? Historians sometimes differ on this. My opinion is that it didn't really change the situation for women all that much. The kind of concrete, tangible aspects of change that we like to think about with the revolution, um, but where I think it did create change is ideologically. Um, and there are lots of scholars who recognize this as well. Um, but as I was saying um, before, women start to think about themselves as having rights. Um, they really start to use this language in the sources I find in the early 1770s, right? There, there are scholars that trace the evolution of people reading and writing about rights in a way that they hadn't prior to the revolution. Um, and it's really important to change hearts and minds before you can change the law, right? So for women to have that change of ideology in their own minds, um, was necessary before they really pushed for any kind of significant concrete changes amid this vast and powerful patriarchal structure. Right. Just one step at a time. Yeah. yeah. So, um, of course, now this isn't a thing that you were going to be able to find in any of the sources, but if you could imagine, what do you think 18th century women would say about the state of women in America today? Do you think that they'd be happy that we have more freedom or would they be dismayed that we're not using it more effectively? That's a really interesting question. I always joke with my students when, you know, um, the Supreme Court is arguing for originalism, which I think is the most kind of morally and intellectually bankrupt thing ever. <laughs> I couldn't agree on what to have for breakfast, let alone what, you know, the Constitution meant um, at, at the time they even wrote it. But I always like to joke that, you know, if, if the founding fathers were here today, they'd be too confused by cars, women and pants and the Internet to focus on the Constitution. Right. I think our, our world is so very far afield from what they're familiar with that it would have been just kind of a, a massive, massive culture shock. Um, and I don't know, honestly, I think women's lives are so, so different today than they were in the 18th century that I don't even, I don't even know how women would react, right? Fashion is different. Technology is different, right? Hygiene is different. Domestic work is so, so different. I mean, just like doing laundry alone, they would have been very, very jealous of our washing machines. <laughs> For sure. I hold my laundry and I hate it. I just think about what laundry was like in the 18th century and, and you know, feel very um, empathetic towards the work that they did. So I don't know. I mean, I think they would be floored, frankly. Um, I know that obviously there are lots of ways in which women's rights are backsliding right now in this country, but I think they would be so very floored by the rights we do have and the fact that women are outspoken in pushing for more or for you know what we had two years ago basically um i don't know i think they would be impressed by that but i think they would be very very overwhelmed would be my guess for sure and uh do you think there's anything that the women of today can learn from their example i think at least in terms of the women that i study there's plenty to learn what not to do um I, I don't want to be too judgy uh, based on the subjects of, of the women in my book because they did what they could with the tools that they had and with the restrictions of the law. Um, but when women are only fighting for themselves in their own individual situation, right, you can totally understand that. But when they're doing that at the expense of others who are also oppressed and marginalized, it ends up hurting everyone, um, mm -hmm. including those individuals, right? So there are in instances in the book where I talk about white women whose freedom and independence is contingent upon the enslavement of others, right? That That's not really freedom, right? And it's right. not, um, it's just buying into this patriarchal system that is also um, hurting them in the long run as well. Um, so I think 
collective action is something that we need to learn the lesson of more of a kind of intersectional approach as we've been seeing in in much more recent years in feminist activism. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And uh, and that is something that we should all keep in mind going forward because the fight is not over. Oh my God. <laughs> well, yeah. so this has been such an interesting conversation and uh, and the book is absolutely incredible. As you say, a very dark read, but a very important one. Yeah. Very fascinating. It's like looking behind the curtain. It's great. Mm-hmm. So where can we find more about you and your work? Um, well, I have a website. Uh, it's just my full name, JacquelineBeatty.com. I'm on Twitter, uh, J-M underscore Beatty. Um, at least I'm on Twitter for now, hoping for a blue sky invites soon because Twitter's <laughs> turning into a dumpster fire. Um, but yeah, I have, I have some other published articles that you could find through Googling me or looking on JSTOR if you're, I don't know if your listeners would have access to JSTOR or not, but, um, but yeah, the book is available um, where a lot of books are sold, maybe not in all independent bookstores, although I'd love to see them in independent bookstores. Um, the The press has the book. Um, you can buy it on bookshop.org and help your local independent bookseller. I think that's the best way to go. Um, but yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Absolutely fascinating. Jacqueline Beatty, thank you so much for your time. This has been awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Jacqueline Beatty for being our guest. Her book is Independence, Women and the Patriarchal State in Revolutionary America. You can find her at JacquelineBeatty.com. I'd also like to thank our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Big hugs and so much love to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Ayana DaCosta, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. And as always, there are other ways to support the show. We are on Patreon at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, or you can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Mastodon at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram, and you can also check out our website at dirtysexyhistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there, too. There's lots of great stuff up there, and we're adding new stuff all the time. So stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great week, guys. See you next time.